you can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. If it's Tuesday, a split screen on the world stage as President Biden declares that U.S. support for Ukraine will not waver. And Vladimir Putin ramps up his rhetoric, suspending Russia's participation in the last remaining nuclear treaty with the U.S. Plus, a grand jury member speaks out, telling the New York Times that the jury recommended multiple indictments in its investigation into former President Trump's attempts to interfere in Georgia's presidential election. And the future of online speech in the hands of the Supreme Court as it decides whether tech giants like Google, Twitter, and Facebook are legally responsible for harmful content that might appear on their platforms. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Peter Alexander, in for my colleague Kristen Welker, who is with President Biden in Poland, where the president is marking the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Today, President Biden and Vladimir Putin each delivered dueling addresses about the state of the conflict amid rising tensions between both the U.S. and Russia and the U.S. and China. In front of a large crowd in Warsaw, Poland, President Biden declared that Russia will never defeat Ukraine while invoking his dramatic visit to the Ukrainian capital yesterday. One year ago, the world was bracing for the fall of Kyiv. Well, I've just come from a visit to Kyiv, and I can report Kyiv stands strong. <laughs> Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. President Biden also vowed to impose new sanctions on Russia this week. He addressed the Russian people directly as well, responding to allegations made by Vladimir Putin just hours earlier, accusing the West of conspiring against him and against his people. I speak once more to the people of Russia. The United States and the nations of Europe do not seek to control or destroy Russia. The West was not plotting to attack Russia, as Putin said today. And millions of Russian citizens who only want to live in peace with their neighbors are not the enemy. This war is never a necessity. It's a tragedy. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. And in a sign of further deteriorating relations with the United States, in Putin's annual State of the Nation address, effectively his State of the Union speech, he announced that Moscow will suspend its participation in the last remaining nuclear arms treaty between the U.S. and Russia. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, horse after days of travel, responded to that announcement a short time later. Here he is. The announcement by uh, Russia that it's uh, suspending participation in USART is deeply unfortunate and irresponsible. Uh, we'll be watching carefully to see what uh, Russia actually does. We'll, of course, make sure that in any event we are postured appropriately for the security of our own country and, and, and that of our allies. We remain uh, ready to talk about uh, strategic arms limitations uh, at any time with Russia, irrespective of anything else going on uh, in the world or in our relationship. 
Meanwhile, as U.S. officials sound the alarm over Chinese military assistance to Russia, Beijing's top diplomat visited Moscow today, reportedly telling one of Putin's closest allies that its relationship with Moscow was, quote, rock solid. Just a short time ago in Poland, NBC's Kristen Welker spoke to the White House National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications, John Kirby, and here is part of that conversation. Did President Biden accomplish what he wanted to with his speech, and what was that? Yes, he did, and he felt very good about the chance to talk to the Polish people, to President Duda, to, to, to the world, quite frankly, um, about how important the support for Ukraine has been this past year. And it's difficult to believe that we're a year in, but how much more critical that support is going to be going forward in the weeks and months ahead as we expect the weather to improve in Ukraine and as we expect the Russians to go back on the offense. The president made an interesting choice. He took on Putin head on in one moment saying, quote, the West was not planning to attack Russia as Putin said today. Why did the president decide to directly counterpunch Vladimir Putin? Because this has been false rhetoric and propaganda, quite frankly, that Mr. Putin has been trying to get out there since before he invaded on February 24th, claiming that that Russia was at risk, that Ukraine was planning some sort of an attack and Russia occupied Ukraine, that this was about his an existential threat. Uh, to Russia, to the people of Russia. And it's just false, Kristen. There's just no truth to it. Ukraine posed no threat to anybody, let alone Russia next door. And I think the president felt it was really important to make sure he made that point, to push back on that exact idea. This is not a new uh, notion by Vladimir Putin. He's been spewing this now since before he actually invaded. It's notable because President Putin, who spoke today, did not call out President Biden by name. President Biden made the opposite calculation. Why? President Putin is the aggressor here. President Putin is responsible for a war that has killed thousands of Ukrainians, destroyed cities and towns, put millions to fleeing their homes, displaced and in refuge, more than a million and a half right here in, in Poland. President Putin is responsible for what's going on inside Ukraine, and, the, and President Biden felt it was important to make that clear, make that case. Also, Kristen, to make the case uh, that President Putin has not achieved any of his strategic objectives. He is not stronger for having done this. Let's talk about one of the big headlines today, President Putin announcing that Russia plans to suspend participation in the nuclear START treaty. Was the administration caught off guard by the timing of this, understanding they had been signaling this for some time? Right. He had announced that he was going to suspend it some time ago. Look, this is unfortunate and frankly irresponsible for a modern nuclear power to pull out of arms control. No matter what else is going on in the world, no matter what the tensions are between the United States and Russia right now over their war in Ukraine, uh, we would hope we could all agree that arms control is a good thing for the safety of our two countries as well as the safety of the world. The start arms treaty is the last treaty between the U.S. and Russia. What are the implications for U.S. safety and security? I hope the American people understand that we are continuing to monitor uh, Russia's nuclear posture as best we can. And we see no indication that Mr. Putin plans to use uh, nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction of any kind. We're watching this as closely as we can. What I can also say is that we haven't seen anything that would change, that would cause us to change our strategic deterrent posture. Well, let me ask it this way. For Americans who are sitting at home and who are worried that this may mean that Putin is more likely to use a nuclear weapon, the fact that he's suspending yeah. Russia's participation in the START treaty, what would you say it's, to those Americans? It's difficult to divine that just from his uh, statement today that he's pulling out of it. That, that That's not the same as saying he intends to 
use nuclear weapons in an operational sense. Uh, it is irresponsible that a modern nuclear power would pull out of an arms control agreement like this. Uh, we were dedicated to it. We extended it as soon as we came into office. Uh, we're going we're gonna to look and see what his statement today actually means. But what does again, that mean you're going to look at it? What actions is the We're going to try to determine as best we can uh, what exactly Mr. Putin means by, uh, by his statements today. But again, I think it's important to remind we are comfortable with our strategic deterrent posture and our ability to protect the American people, to protect our, our allies and partners, we're very comfortable with that. And we haven't done anything that would change that posture just based on today's announcement. Secretary Blinken warned his counterpart there will be serious consequences if China provides lethal aid to Russia. And yet his counterpart is in Russia as we speak. What do you make of that? Well, each nation has to speak for themselves in terms of their bilateral relations. It, it is not helpful to see that, that China has not yet come out and condemned this war and tried to hold Mr. Putin to account. We would want them to make that choice, to join the rest of the international community. Now, I won't get into what the consequences might be, uh, but it, you know, we, we are going to watch this very closely to see what they do. Part of Kristen Welker's conversation with the National Security Council spokesperson, John Kirby. And Kristen is joining us now from Warsaw, Poland. Kristen, uh, we've had a chance to speak over the day, but I want to share part of our conversation with the audience now. Pull back the curtain a little bit. I know in these trips you get a chance to speak to some of the senior advisors to the president privately. Broadly, what are they saying about the trip to this point? I know they felt good about the way yesterday went. Sort of walk us uh, into your world and what you're experiencing there. Yeah, Peter, you're absolutely right. So much of these trips is about pulling back the curtain and talking to senior administration officials about how they are perceiving these events. I can tell you that they feel good about the president's speech. They feel as though he conveyed the message that he aimed to, which is that Vladimir Putin has not met his own objectives and that the global community needs to stay united in its efforts to both isolate Russia and to continue to support Ukraine in this war effort. Now, as you'll recall, Peter, I was here about a year ago when President Biden spoke a month into this conflict. He had that ad lib line where he essentially seemed to call for Putin to basically be removed from power. The White House had to walk that back. There is some relief tonight, Peter, that there were no ad lib lines. They feel as though the president was on point and delivered a very powerful speech and a very powerful warning to Vladimir Putin. The question, though, how does this all end, Peter? That still remains unanswered here. Yeah, the real question is, will we be there one year from now as this war perhaps extends itself? I want to ask you about some new reporting while you've been there. The Wall Street Journal is now reporting that Chinese President Xi is preparing to go to Moscow perhaps later this year. How concerned is the White House about this relationship between Beijing and Moscow, given the reporting uh, and what we heard from Anthony Blinken on NBC on Meet the Press, basically saying that China is right now considering providing lethal aid, weapons to Russia? Well, and Peter, that's what I was talking to John Kirby about as well. I think it is safe to say that China is arguably one of the largest concerns when you talk to administration officials, particularly as it relates to the war in Ukraine. Uh, and they are wrestling with, A, what specifically would lethal aid mean? And will China take that warning by the Secretary of State seriously that there will be 
consequences, serious consequences, if China does follow through with that threat. Now, again, you heard John Kirby being very careful in his wording, not giving any details about what those consequences would look like. But, Peter, this is undoubtedly top of mind for officials here, because, again, the challenge for the president, keeping the global community unified and a divided Congress unified. And, Kristen, as we've spoken about what's so striking with this president is, I think, to most observers, they feel like, given the hand he was dealt, the president has done the best he can with this situation between Russia and Ukraine. He has fortified the NATO alliance, and yet Americans are starting to experience this sort of Russia or Ukraine fatigue right now. Do, do the folks that you're speaking with there have concerns about the way this is being viewed back home? Well, and I asked John Kirby about that as well. The fact that 50 percent, according to our latest poll of Americans, disagree with President Biden's handling of the war in Ukraine. And I asked, why is that? And frankly, they don't have a good response for that, except to say that he will continue to make this argument, which is so critical and central to what we heard from President Biden today here in Warsaw, which is that this is a broader battle for democracy. This is bigger than Ukraine and that he will continue to make that argument forcefully over and over again to try to make Americans understand. But look, again, going back to that argument about a divided Congress, some Republicans saying they're not going to want to continue to write a so-called blank check for yeah. Ukraine aid moving forward. So it's a real challenge, Peter. We're going to play part of that conversation where you asked him that specific question a short time from now. Kristen Welker on the ground in Warsaw, Poland. Safe travels. And we'll see you back here in D.C. in a couple of days. Kristen, thank you so much. Joining me now is the mayor of Warsaw, Rafael Trzaskowski. Mr. Mayor, it's nice to be with you. I appreciate you making time for us. You met with President Biden today. I want to get a sense of what his message was to you and if you're satisfied by the words that you heard from the American president. It was just incredible. The president of the United States was in Kiev yesterday showing uh, incredible courage. And today he delivered one of the most important speeches that I've heard in a long, long time, showing leadership. And we uh, lack leadership uh, in Europe right now. We need politicians who can actually talk about the most important things that there are, such as freedom, such as sovereignty, such as standing united against uh, uh, an aggression, a, a Russian aggression against Ukraine. So, of course, uh, we were listening to every word very carefully and, most importantly, we feel much more secure because uh, the president repeated his words that every inch of NATO territory will be defended. And of course, uh, we also feel uh, heartened uh, that the American administration is ready to keep on supporting Ukraine. And Mayor Traskovsky, uh, you know, this war is now entering its second year. The president has said that the U.S. will stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. Will Poland do the same? Yes, of course. We are very much committed to uh, what's happening in Ukraine because we are absolutely convinced that the Ukrainians are fighting not only for their freedom, but also for our freedom and for the stability of transatlantic relations. Every crazy dictator in the world is watching and is asking himself a question whether the West will be united, whether we will be tough on dictators who want to uh, trample on international law and uh, the fact that uh, the U.S. administration of President Biden, but also its most important allies uh, in this part of Europe, such as Poland, are on the same page and that we will keep on 
helping Ukraine is incredibly important for the stability of the world. And Mr. Mayor, I want to follow up on something that you said to me just a moment ago. You said right now that in Europe there is a lack of leadership. Where in particular are you seeing that leadership vacuum and, and what is your frustration because of it? Well, I mean, unfortunately, uh, some countries in Europe are dragging their feet when it comes to helping Ukraine. Who's dragging their uh, feet? And sometimes, well, I mean, you know, even our closest neighbors uh, sometimes are dragging their feet and they're not taking decisions as quickly as they should. And unfortunately, I can see in some uh, of uh, European countries uh, this uh, fatigue syndrome kicking in. Uh, because it is true that this war starts to cost us a lot of money because of the energy crisis, because of the inflation, uh, because of the rising prices of materials. And some of that is, of course, linked to the war on our eastern border. That's why we need leadership. We need leaders such as President Biden telling our friends that we need to be united and we need to be committed. Is it time to get Ukraine and Russia to the negotiating table? Well, the president actually answered that question because he said that Vladimir Putin can end this war every hour. He can simply stop the invasion. He can take his forces out of Ukraine. Uh, it's as simple as that. So uh, the ball is on the on the Russian court. And that's why we need to keep pressuring uh, Russia. And that's why we need a uh, new batch of uh, sanctions, uh, which the president uh, promised. Uh, because that's the only language that dictators understand. Let me ask you about some of the news of the day. Vladimir Putin today announcing that he is suspending the New START treaty that brings into question the future of this long-existing global ban on nuclear weapons tests. How concerning is that for you as a neighbor to Ukraine, just uh, basically in the neighborhood with Russia right now? As I've said, uh, we feel secure because we are part of the NATO, but uh, that's what Vladimir Putin does. I mean, he is. But if he gets rid of the START threats. treaty, does that add concern to you right now that he could continue well, to do this? Of, of course, of course, it adds concerns. But I mean, you know, that's no surprise because that's that's the only thing that Vladimir Putin understands: mm -hmm. trying to bully uh, countries, trying to threaten us, uh, because that's the only language that he understands. But. I think that his credibility is, is, is much weaker and weaker because he thought that he could uh, conquer Ukraine yeah. within hours. And it was proved that, that it's not the case. He thought that the Ukrainian society will be divided and weak. He thought that he will be dealing with the Ukrainian right. leadership, which is not going to show guts. And he miscalculated on all of those counts. So let me ask you, let me ask you one final question, if I can, if I can, before I let you go. Poland, of course, has taken in more than a million and a half Ukrainian refugees right now. Do you have the resources that you need to continue to support uh, that massive number of refugees? And what specifically do you need more? of right now? Well, I've talked to President Biden about it, that uh, we saw American money on the ground immediately through a United Nations agencies such as UNICEF, and we need that to continue because, of course, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are still in Warsaw, and we need to keep on helping them when it comes to education, healthcare, social policy, and so on and so forth. And I hope that the American administration will help us with that. But let me uh, make one thing abundantly clear. We will help our Ukrainian friends for as long as it takes, because all of my Ukrainian friends who are fighting on the front are telling me we can fight because you take care of our women and children. Mm. So we need to take our responsibility to do our bit 
because we all have a dog in this fight. Warsaw Mayor Rafael Truskovsky. Mr. Mayor, we appreciate your time and we wish you more safety in the months and years ahead. Thank you very much. Still ahead, we are live in Moscow with how President Biden's sweeping indictment of Vladimir Putin is being received. Plus, we're going to dig deeper into the sudden stop to the START nuclear pact. Plus, new details on the election interference investigation into former President Trump. You're watching Meet the Press now. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Joining me now is Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, author of the Bill of Obligations, the Ten Habits of Good Citizens. Richard, thanks for being here. I want to get your sort of help for folks to understand the significance of this announcement, at least by Vladimir Putin at this time, the suspension of the New START treaty and what that means. Does, does it mean, do you expect that Russia would begin to expand its, its nuclear arsenal or is this just sort of a rhetorical threat? It actually doesn't mean that much. The agreement has four years to go, Peter. The Russians are not going to break out. They said they would continue to honor the, the limits. They've already stopped most cooperation with inspectors. So what they've essentially done is stop what they've already stopped. So I don't, I don't think it's, it's, it's all that uh, significant. In four years, we're going to have a big question. What do we put in its place? Right. And there's questions about new weapon systems, Chinese participation. That's when the real issues come. But in the short run, it doesn't really change a whole, a, a whole lot. And I think it also reflects the reality that, that Russia's last remaining vestige of being a great power, besides energy, is nuclear weapons. So I think their enthusiasm for restraining nuclear weapons is limited. So how, how much, I guess, perhaps does it, does it say in terms of the damage done to the relationship between the United States and Russia right now? Clearly, they have bigger issues, what's no. going on in Russia. But I mean, this, this only escalates the tension between the two sides. Yeah, there's essentially no relationship. Let's, let's call a spade a spade. This is one of the last vestiges of the previous relationship. It's on life support. But there isn't really much of any relationship anymore. How, how worried do you think China is about the announcement by Vladimir Putin today? Well, I don't think they're that worried. I think they're more worried about the direction of the war. China cast its lot with, with Russia. So Xi Jinping has put his prestige on the line. It's, it's almost the equivalent of a bad investment so far. And I think the most interesting question of the next few days and weeks is, does China ramp up its support for Russia? I think there's a decent chance it, it might. It, do, it doesn't mind this war continuing. It kind of bleeds the readiness militarily of the United States. It certainly doesn't want Russia to lose. Right. That would be bad for, for China. So I, I think that's the place to look. Richard, it was really striking to hear from Anthony Blinken on Meet the Press. I was a part of Chuck's panel uh, here over the weekend where he basically made this accusation that China is considering providing lethal aid weapons to Russia right now. When pressed, he didn't provide any particular evidence. He seemed to say they would be reading in allies in the days ahead, but didn't. he wasn't specific about that as well. How, obviously, that would be a huge escalation were China to do this right now. How concerned do you think the U.S. should be that China is serious about considering to do something like that and that that's a real problem that, that could be on the doorstep? Oh, it is real, and that, that guarantees this would be a prolonged war. I think that's likely anyhow. 
But one of the hopes people like me had is even if the war is long term, it would dial down in its, in its intensity. If China begins to feed the Russian war machine, that puts a lot more pressure on Ukraine and indirectly on the rest of NATO, including uh, ourselves. And I think it's possible. I think China basically dismisses the possibility of an improved relationship with the United States. They see what's going on here. They simply see no chance of it. And they really don't think there's that many penalties left to impose. Indeed, the Europeans may be reluctant to introduce certain economic penalties yeah. because several of them are so dependent on trade with China. And Richard, according to the latest NBC News poll, I think the number is roughly 41% of Americans right now say that they are satisfied by President Biden's handling of this war. That means that most are not. There are no U.S. boots on the ground, but maybe $100 billion has been spent, about $30 billion in, in direct military aid to Ukraine right now. How, you know, how, as a president, how as an administration, do you not just win over Mitch McConnell, who said this is critical, we got to stick to it, it's the most important effort in the world, but the American people right now who may uh, be experiencing a, a type of fatigue by the amount of money and the effort that's being spent overseas? I actually don't read it that way, Peter. I think, first of all, the president has the support of Republicans, most Republicans in Congress, as well as most Democrats. I actually think that poll is very close to the overall numbers on President Biden. It's almost an approval, disapproval number. I don't think Americans are hanging on the latest news from Ukraine. I'd be surprised if most Americans, if any Americans, essentially voted on the basis of our right. Ukraine policy at the midterms. And I actually think the president's done a good job. So I don't take that poll all that seriously. All right. Yeah, I appreciate your uh, your thoughts on that and your perspective always. Richard Haas, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, we take you to Wisconsin, where a massively consequential off-year election could impact everything from election laws to reproductive rights in a presidential battleground state. This is a big deal that you may not have heard of. We're going to read you in in a moment. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. If it's Tuesday, voters are headed to the ballot box in Battleground, Wisconsin, this time for a primary election to decide which judicial candidates will end up with the spot on the state's Supreme Court. This is the semifinal, as it were, the final to come in April. It's an election that could have a major impact on everything from abortion access to voting rights in what is obviously a crucial presidential battleground state. And NBC's Shaq Brewster is outside of a polling place in Racine, Wisconsin, right now. Shaq, walk us through this as we talk about it. So up for control, up for grabs here is control of the state Supreme Court and with it a ton of key issues. Uh, how important is this right. and how many people are really paying close attention to what happens there today? How engaged are the voters of Wisconsin? Well, Peter, I'll tell you, my conversations with candidates on both sides of the ideological spectrum here in this race uh, have revealed that everyone sees this as crucially important. They know the stakes in this election, and that's because Wisconsin Supreme Court is conservative right now. There's a 4-3 conservative majority. This is Democrats' one opportunity in some four years to be able to flip the balance of the court and uh, essentially erase what has been a major obstacle for the party in this state. This court has been at the center of many conversations 
controversial rulings over the past couple of years. We're talking about things like striking down completely the COVID uh, stay-at-home orders. It, they forced an election just weeks into the pandemic. They sided with Republicans in legislative maps, choosing a map that, despite a Democratic governor winning in November, led to a near supermajority, a near veto-proof majority in the legislature. So Democrats see this as a key opportunity, one that doesn't come up too much uh, for them to flip the balance of this court. And Republicans want to protect their gains. So you have both sides flooding a lot of money into this race, spending more than $10 million in this primary race alone. And there's a lot of attention being spent to what happens tonight. And Jack, to be clear, the winner of this race will get a 10-year term. So this is going to calcify some things in that state for an extended period of time, considering the potential for other turnover, of course. But what's interesting is this is supposed to be a sort of nonpartisan election. These are are judges that they are voting on, but it doesn't really work that way there with so many of these candidates basically flick at their politics through their campaigning, through their through their public comments. That's exactly right. And that's somewhat unique in this election. You make a good point. These are 10 year terms that they're serving. But one thing to note is that the next open seat, the next known vacancy isn't coming until after the 2024 presidential Mm -hmm. election. So you have some of the more liberal candidates saying that at issue here is democracy itself. Things like voting rights that we were talking about before. Abortion access is one that comes up over and over again. You see it all over the ads because or all all over the television airwaves because this is a state where abortion is essentially banned, and that issue is expected to be before this court uh, within the next year or so. Shaq Brewster on the ground for us in Wisconsin, another key voting day. Shaq, thank you very much for that update. And as we're fond of saying on the show, if it is Tuesday, voters are voting somewhere. And in addition to Wisconsin today, that somewhere is a special election in Virginia's 4th Congressional District to replace the late Democratic Congressman uh, Donald McKechn, who passed away in November. Democrat Jennifer McClellan is the favorite against Republican Leon Benjamin in the heavily Democratic district. If elected, McClellan, a state senator, would become the first black woman to represent Virginia in Congress. And as Democrats hope to fill one House seat, another will soon be left open. Today, Rhode Island Congressman David Cicilline announced his resignation. The seven-term congressman and former Trump impeachment manager made a brief bid for Democratic leadership this session. His last day in the House will be the last day of May, May 31st, as he leaves to become the new president and CEO of the Rhode Island Foundation. We're going to be right back with new legal developments for former President Trump. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. President Biden praised Congress's bipartisan support of Ukraine in Poland today. But despite broad support from lawmakers, voters across America are split. As I mentioned just a few moments ago in my discussion with Richard Haas, our NBC News poll from last month shows just shy of 50 percent say Congress should provide more funding and weapons to Ukraine. Compare that to 47 percent who say they should not. And only 41 percent of Americans approve of President Biden's handling of Ukraine. Our very own Kristen Welker asked the National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby about that number earlier today. Our latest NBC News poll shows 50% of Americans disagree of President Biden's handling of the war in Ukraine. Why do you think that is? Well, it's difficult for to, to know exactly you know, why uh, Americans would, would, would think that way. But again, we believe that, that most Americans understand what's at stake here, not just the idea of independence, not just, not just the very idea of Ukrainian lives, 
but but how much more um, how much more deep uh, the cost to, to blood and to treasure would occur if Mr. Putin were to succeed. Joining me now on our panel, Cornell Belcher, Democratic pollster and an NBC political analyst, Daniel Platka, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, also an NBC News contributor, and Lisa Desjardins, a correspondent at PBS NewsHour covering Capitol Hill, and maybe we'll make her an NBC News contributor for the end of this conversation. <laughs> honorary. <laughs> honorary is good for today. Danny, I want to ask you about this really quickly because I'm struck by that number, right? 41% of Americans say they're satisfied by the way President Biden has handled the situation in Ukraine. I think most folks, even Mitch McConnell, though he's critical that aid didn't get there sooner, say that he's handled a bad situation about as well as he could. Is this frustration with his handling of it or just the view of President Biden broadly? Well, certainly it's partly a view of President Biden broadly. But I think that I wrote this piece last week. The president has not made the case. I commend him really sincerely as, as a loyal opposition. I commend him for going to, to Kiev. I wish he'd gone six months ago. He needs to make the case more often. I think our policy could be improved. But even if it wasn't, explain to the American people what's at stake. Talk to them. There hasn't been a single Oval Office address about this. Previous presidents went to the American people, made national addresses all the time. This president hasn't made the case. And I think that that's one of the reasons why his numbers are dropping, even among Democrats. But Cornell, to be very clear, the president has gone multiple times. He was in Poland a year ago, Poland again now. He just went to Kiev. I know Danny said it should have happened sooner. Are they doing a good enough job of communicating to the American people, you know, what's at stake here and why we should care? Now, I'm a little surprised by my friend Danny because she, because she's a historian. She knows this. Tell me what president has been involved in a conflict and where the American people were all gung ho for that. For that, for that, for that conflict. This look, this well, post there's, there's a natural, <laughs> you know. So going into the summer of of his reelection, George Bush was underwater 12 points on on, on Iraq. Yeah. Americans don't like being at war, yeah. right? They, they they just they just do, they just do not like being at war, and we are always at this conflict of whether or not we are getting involved in hot spots around the world, and Americans always saying, well, we got problems right here. I mean, that goes back centuries in, the, in this country. You know, a lot of the folks that have been saying that right now, at least as you've seen, have been some of these far-right Republicans, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gaetzes, who, of course, would have to have a criticism of the president even being in Kiev yesterday that was, as Danny notes, widely celebrated across the aisle, except among a few, they basically say that this money is being wasted overseas, it should be spent elsewhere, where the president should be in Ohio, not in Kiev. But the party leadership on the Republican side has been heavily behind this. Here's Mitch McConnell. Well, I'm going to try to help explain to the American people that defeating the Russians in Ukraine is the single most important event going on in the world right now. So it doesn't sound like there's real division among Republicans. It's just some of the loud voices that get the megaphone on occasion. I wonder about that. I think this moment for Republicans on the Hill is one where they have their finger in the air. And the reason is polling. We're seeing Republicans in polls more and more have dissatisfaction with the idea of staying in Ukraine. So the argument that we're saying President Biden may need to make to the American public if he wants to sell this war is especially true with the Republican base. And we know that members of Congress in this time of uncertainty politically for them are not the ones leading the way. They're following the Republican base. And we're seeing the Republican base now back off of Ukraine. It's uncertain. It could still change. But I, I think there is real divide in the Republican Party, and it's growing. First of all, thank you, Cornell, for, uh, for, for saying nice things about me. But, but look, um, we're not fighting in Ukraine. 
we are helping Ukrainians fight this war for themselves. So, you know, Iraq, we were there on the ground. We had 100,000 plus guys on the ground there. We're not fighting this war. And that's why I think President Biden has a case to make. You're right there. There's there's some splits uh, among Republicans. But again, you know, I just talked to Jack Keane about this on our podcast, right? A hundred million dollars. What do you get? That's a quarter of what Joe Biden thought he could pull out of his hat to pay for people's student loans. That's what it's costing to defeat Vladimir Putin. That is the case that needs to be made day in, day out. I'm happy to and, do it. And look the, po- look, the politics of this, look, one, I, one, I look, I, I don't think you're ever going to convince the Republican base that anything Joe Biden d- does is, is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. However, the politics, just to play hard politics on this, look, if, if it's the contrast is, you know, we're standing up for democracy and freedom, like like the president said. Ukraine is to stand strong and free. If we're standing up for democracy and freedom versus the other guys wanting to stand up for autocracy yeah. and tyrants, I like that political contrast. I don't think, I think Mitch McConnell's right. Mainstream Republicans don't want that contrast. Mm-hmm. But I think some of the batch, backbenchers aren't afraid of it. So let me ask you about another contest that we may be watching, which is Donald Trump and the role he may play in the next election. We're already hearing some news as it relates to what happened in Georgia. The- the special grand jury that was seated there. And this is from the New York Times. They report today that the special grand jury's four-person told the Times that the jury recommended indictments of multiple people on a range of charges. She added, quote, you're not going to be shocked. This was notable because initially we just knew that basically they found that a bunch of people lied, but we didn't know how many they'd be pursuing indictments with or that they had recommended it with or whether there was a range. They seem to think there were a bunch of people who did something wrong here. Lisa, what do we make of this? If you think of all of these stories we're covering right now as a series of those like pickup sticks that are interwoven, this is one that when you pull it out could affect a lot of other yeah. stories. This seems to indicate, you know, they, the, I think the foreman said, foreman said, there's no surprises. So I think a lot of people are guessing, oh, we think perhaps former President Trump is going to be on this list of indictments. It's up to the district attorney to make those decisions. But guess who's waiting for those decisions? A number of Republicans who would like to be president. President, who see that right now former President Trump is still the strongest candidate. If he's indicted, they're waiting to see how that changes. Danny, how does this affect your party and the nomination process? Well, (laughs) (laughs) deep breath. Just one little step. No, look, I think there are a lot of people who are waiting for a deus ex machina that doesn't that Mm. takes Donald Trump out of out of the picture, because no matter what, even though he I don't think he can win an election, even though he's helped the Republicans lose three elections in a row. Nonetheless, he has a very solid, hardcore, even if it's shrinking base. And so to have somebody pull that that pickup stick out and just say, "Uh, uh, sorry, you know, this guy outside says you can't be part of this race, there'd be a lot of very quiet applause. Cordell, does Donald Trump's indictment, does that actually affect his nomination, the he potential nomination? He could stand in the middle of Times Square and shoot mm-hmm. someone and not lose any support. And he was right about that. Let me ask you about Ron DeSantis before we say goodbye to this conversation. Ron DeSantis making a bunch of road trips recently. It appears that he's inching a little bit closer to announcement of his own. He's been trying to focus on this idea of law and order. Also, Lisa, focus, focusing on this idea of sort of anti-wokeism right, right now. Is that cultural issue enough to rally a country or just enough to rally Republicans? It seems like what we're dealing with is the Republican Party's identity kind of decisions that they're making. There is now an anti-woke caucus in Congress that was just formed by Republican Jim Banks. Um, Anything can happen. We can see perhaps that will shift in sort of a national narrative in a substantive way. Right now it feels political to me. 
Anti-wokeism is an attribute of the Southern strategy. It is a modern-day attribute of the Southern strategy. Does it help him in a general election? Absolutely not. But he's not focused on a general election right now. He's got to beat Donald Trump in an election with where Republican primary voters and understanding who Republican primary voters. Donald Trump started his campaign saying Mexicans are murderers, rapists, and gang members. And he won the Republican nomination. Democrats he also won think, the election. Democrats think, last thought, Democrats think they can beat Donald Trump with Joe Biden. But then what happens to the generational issue, right? If all of a sudden it's a Ron DeSantis against a Joe Biden, then it's a real challenge for Democrats. I, I like our chances if, it, if it's, if, listen, I think, I think the president's going to have quite a story to tell at the end of this. Infrastructure is happening. People are seeing shovels going to ground across yeah. this country. Inflation's coming down. The economy is growing. I think he's going to have a good story to tell. Is it going to be easy? Absolutely, it never is. But he's going to have a good story to tell. As the president aides have told me repeatedly 2023 will be the year of implementation. They need yes. to do a good job showing that, that this money was well spent. <laughs> <laughs> really no doubt. Danny and Lisa Cornell, I'm really glad you guys were all here with us. Thanks so much. We want to turn now to Ohio, where the head of the Environmental Protection Agency has ordered a rail company, the rail company, Norfolk Southern, to clean up the site where one of its trains derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this month, producing that fire that released toxic chemicals into the air. After drawing criticism for his absence in the wake of the incident, Norfolk Southern's CEO, Alan Shaw, was on the ground in East Palestine today. CNBC's Morgan Brennan asked Shaw if he would trust the air and water for himself and for his family. Here's his answer. If East Palestine was your home, would you have come back? Would you bring your children back right now? Yes. Yes, I've come back multiple times. I've drinking the water here. I've, I've interacted with the families here. I, look, I, I know they're hurt. I know they're scared. Um, I know they're confused. They're looking for information and who to trust. I encourage them to ask questions. And I think when they really dig into it, they're gonna see that all the testing whether it's done by the EPA or local health officials or our independent contractors, show that it's safe to return to this community. And my commitment to this community is we will continue with the environmental remediation. We've made a lot of progress and we're cooperating and coordinating with the Ohio EPA on a long-term remediation plan. The CEO of Norfolk Southern, their residents of East Palestine, continue to raise concerns about the impact of the chemicals on the health and safety of their community. The Ohio Health Department is trying to address some of those concerns today, opening a clinic for anyone in the community who has symptoms or medical concerns related to the train derailment. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro said today that his office has made a criminal referral in response to the derailment. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine signaled his state is also prepared to take legal action. Coming up next, the Supreme Court is hearing arguments on two cases that could change online speech and social media as we know it as it debates whether tech giants like Google and Twitter, Facebook too, should be held liable for what happens on their platforms. You're watching Meet the Press now. We're back in the Supreme Court today heard arguments in a case that could significantly change how some of the biggest tech companies operate. The case involves a challenge to what's known as Section 230. It's a decades-old provision that protects some Internet sites from being sued for material shared by users on their sites, essentially treating them as platforms for communication, not publishers. 
In a case before the court, the Gonzalez family, who lost their son in a 2015 terrorist attack in Paris, is arguing that Google, and by extension YouTube, should be liable because the algorithm promoted content recruiting people to ISIS. This is the first time the court has considered this issue. It has broad ramifications, and NBC's Yamiche Alcindor is here with us now to break down what we heard out of the court today. Yamiche, it's nice to be with you. So tell us, what were the arguments today? And this is this has, as we said, big, significant ramifications here. This could affect the way a lot of us sort of engage in social media. This Supreme Court case, Gonzalez v. Google, could reshape the Internet as we know it. Um, it is the most consequential case on Internet governance to come before the Supreme Court. And frankly, the, the justices today, both liberal and conservative, they seem skeptical of the idea that Google and by means YouTube could be held liable for the content that's being hosted on their website, even though we should be very clear that this is really about recommending videos. It's about the algorithm. This family, the Gonzalez family, is arguing that YouTube is liable for spreading terrorists messages because they're not only just hosting the sites um, and hosting the videos, they're telling people, well, why don't you watch this next video? Um, it was interesting to hear oral arguments that went on for over two hours. Mm -hmm. Take a listen to some of that. I don't understand how a neutral suggestion about something that you've expressed an interest in uh, is aiding and abetting. I just don't, I don't understand it. And I'm trying to get you to explain to us how something that is standard on YouTube for virtually anything that you have an interest in suddenly amounts to aiding and abetting because you're in the ISIS category. So what you, heard, what you really heard there was Justice Clarence Thomas saying, how do you get from the idea that these people aren't liable for the content but are liable for the algorithm that gives them to that gives them these videos? So this is a family, of course, that is heartbroken because they lost their child in this 2015 terrorist attack. But it sounds like it's going to be an uphill battle for to make this case. But to be clear, though, I mean, this is not sort of a straightforward partisan case, right? So what is the anticipated breakdown on this? I guess we wait and see. We wait and see because, again, the, the justices seemed very confused. At one point, Alega Kagan, who was known as a liberal, she was sounding like she was really agreeing with Clarence Thomas. And at one point, she said, we aren't nine internet experts. Are we the best place for this to be argued? It's also interesting because what you have here is really an argument about Section 230, which is the bedrock of the internet. If we would not have the internet the way we have it, if this was to be pu pulled out or overturned and Section 230 went away, you would see sites do things like take away the comment section, say, well, you know what, we're not going to have people have user-generated content. I mean, imagine YouTube, Facebook, but even news websites say, you know what, we're not going to have user-generated content because it's too much of a liability. So definitely a lot on the line here. And justices say, Sounding like they're confused and likely not um, going to rule in in the favor of of this family, though yeah. you know we have to watch to see what actually happens. I think you and I would both agree. Sometimes those comments places are very deep rabbit holes that are better that you avoid. Yes, <laughs> we'll see yes. how this all goes. It's great to have you, Yamish. Thank you very much for sharing that, and thank you for being with us at this hour. NBC News Now coverage continues with Tom Costello. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.